Book Three, Chapter One, of The Old Wife's Tale, by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale, by Arnold Bennett. Book Three, Sophia. Chapter One, The Elopement. One. Her soberly rich dress had a countrified air as she waited, ready for the streets, in the bedroom of the London Hotel on the afternoon of the first of July, eighteen sixty-six. But there was nothing of the provincial in that beautiful face, nor in the bearing at once shy and haughty, and her eager heart soared beyond geographical boundaries. It was the Hatfield Hotel in Salisbury Street, between the Strand and the river. Both street and hotel are now gone, lost in the vast foundations of the Savoy and the Cecil, but the type of the Hatfield lingers with ever-increasing shabbiness in Jermyn Street. In 1866, with its dark passages and crooked stairs, its candles, its carpets and stuffs which had outlived their patterns, its narrow dining-room, where a thousand busy flies ate together at one long table, its acrid, stagnant atmosphere, and its disturbing sensation of dirt everywhere concealing itself, it stood forth in rectitude as a good average modern hotel. The patched and senile drabness of the bedroom made an environment that emphasised Sophia's flashing youth. She alone in it was unsullied. There was a knock at the door, apparently gay and jaunty, but she thought truly, "'He's nearly as nervous as I am.' And in her sick nervousness she coughed, and then tried to take full possession of herself. The moment had at last come which would divide her life as a battle divides the history of a nation. Her mind, in an instant, swept backwards through an incredible three months. The schemings to obtain and hide Gerald's letters at the shop, and to reply to them, the far more complex and dangerous duplicity practised upon her majestic aunt at Axe, the visits to the Axe post-office, the three divine meetings with Gerald at an early morning by the canal feeder when he had told her of his inheritance and of the harshness of his uncle Boldero, and with a rush of words had spread before her the prospect of eternal bliss, the nights of fear, the sudden dizzy acquiescence in his plan, and the feeling of universal unreality which obsessed her, the audacious departure from her aunts, showering a cascade of appalling lies, her dismay at Knipe Station, her blush as she asked for a ticket to London, the ironic, sympathetic glance of the porter who took charge of her trunk, and then the thunder of the incoming train, her renewed dismay when she found that it was very full, and her distracted plunge into a compartment with six people already in it, and the abrupt reopening of the carriage door, and that curt inquisition from an inspector, "'Wherefore, please? Wherefore? Wherefore?' until her turn was reached. "'Wherefore, miss?' and her weak little reply, "'Euston,' and more violent blushes, and then the long steady beating of the train over the rails." keeping time to the rhythm of the unanswerable voice within her breast, "'Why are you here? Why are you here?' And then Rugby, and the awful ordeal of meeting Gerald, his entry into the compartment, 
the rearrangement of seats, and their excruciatingly painful attempts at commonplace conversation in the publicity of the carriage, she had felt that that part of the enterprise had not been very well devised by Gerald. And at last London, the thousands of cabs, the fabulous streets, the general roar, all dream-surpassing, intensifying to an extraordinary degree the obsession of unreality, the illusion that she could not really have done what she had done, that she was not really doing what she was doing. Supremely and finally, the delicious torture of the clutch of terror at her heart as she moved by Gerald's side through the impossible adventure. Who was this rash, mad Sophia? Surely not herself. The knock at the door was impatiently repeated. "'Come in,' she said timidly. Gerald Scales came in. Yes, beneath that mien of a commercial traveller who has been everywhere and through everything, he was very nervous. It was her privacy that, with her consent, he had invaded. He had engaged the bedroom only, with the intention of using it as a retreat for Sophia until the evening, when they were to resume their travels. It ought not to have had any disturbing significance. But the mere disorder on the washstand, a towel lying on one of the cane chairs, made him feel that he was affronting decency, and so increased his jaunty nervousness. The moment was painful. The moment was difficult, beyond his skill, to handle it naturally. Approaching her with factitious ease, he kissed her through her veil, which she then lifted with an impulsive movement, and he kissed her again more ardently, perceiving that her ardour was exceeding his. This was the first time they had been alone together since her flight from Axe, and yet, with his worldly experience, he was naive enough to be surprised that he could not put all the heat of passion into his embrace, and he wondered why he was not thrilled at the contact with her. However, the powerful clinging of her lips somewhat startled his senses, and also delighted him by its silent promise. He could smell the stuff of her veil, the sarsenate of her bodice, and— as it were wrapped in these odours as her body was wrapped in its clothes, the faint, fleshly perfume of her body itself. Her face, viewed so close that he could see the almost imperceptible down on those fruit-like cheeks, was astonishingly beautiful. The dark eyes were exquisitely misted, and he could feel the secret loyalty of her soul ascending to him. She was very slightly taller than her lover, but somehow she hung from him, her body curved backwards, and her bosom pressed against his, so that instead of looking up at her gaze, he looked down at it. He preferred that. Perfectly proportioned though he was, his stature was a delicate point with him. His spirits rose by the uplift of his senses. His fears slipped away. He began to be very satisfied with himself. He was the inheritor of twelve thousand pounds, and he had won this unique creature. She was his creature— he held her close, permittedly scanning the minutiae of her skin, permittedly crushing her flimsy silks. Something in him had forced her to lay her modesty on the altar of his desire, and the sun brightly shone. So he kissed her yet more ardently, and with the slightest touch of a victor's condescension, and her burning response more than restored the self-confidence which he had been losing. "'I've got no one but you now.' she murmured in a melting voice. She fancied in her ignorance that the expression of this sentiment would please him. She was not aware that a man is usually rather chilled by it, 
because it proves to him that the other is thinking about his responsibilities and not about his privileges. Certainly it calmed Gerald, though without imparting to him her sense of his responsibilities. He smiled vaguely. To Sophia his smile was a miracle continually renewed. It mingled dashing gaiety with a hint of wistful appeal in a manner that never failed to bewitch her. A less innocent girl than Sophia might have divined from that adorable half-feminine smile that she could do anything with Gerald except rely on him. But Sophia had to learn. "'Are you ready?' he asked, placing his hands on her shoulders and holding her away from him. "'Yes,' she said, nerving herself. Their faces were still very near together. "'Well, would you like to go and see the Doré pictures?' "'A simple enough question.' a proposal felicitous enough. Doré was becoming known even in the five towns, not assuredly by his illustration as to the Comte Drolatique of Balzac, but by his shuddering biblical conceits. In pious circles Doré was saving art from the reproach of futility and frivolity. It was indubitably a tasteful idea on Gerald's part to take his love of a summer's afternoon to gaze at the originals of those prints which had so deeply impressed the five towns. It was an idea that sanctified the profane adventure. Yet Sophia showed signs of affliction. Her colour went and came, her throat made the motion of swallowing, there was a muscular contraction over her whole body, and she drew herself from him. Her glance, however, did not leave him, and his eyes fell before hers. "'But what about the wedding?' she breathed. That sentence seemed to cost all her pride, but she was obliged to utter it, and to pay for it. "'Oh!' he said, lightly and quickly, just as though she had reminded him of a detail that might have been forgotten. "'I was just going to tell you. It can't be done here. There's been some change in the rules. I only found out for certain last night. But I've ascertained that it'll be as simple as ABC before the English consul at Paris.' "'And as I've got the tickets for us to go over to-night, as we arranged—' He stopped. She sat down on the towel-covered chair, staggered. She believed what he said. She did not suspect that he was using the classic device of the seducer. It was his casualness that staggered her. Had it really been his intention to set off on an excursion and remark as an afterthought, "'By the way, we can't be married, as I told you at half-past two to-day?' Despite her extreme ignorance and innocence, Sophia held a high opinion of her own common sense and capacity for looking after herself, and she could scarcely believe that he was expecting her to go to Paris, and at night, without being married. She looked pitiably young, virgin, raw, unsophisticated, helpless in the midst of dreadful dangers. Yet her head was full of a blank astonishment at being mistaken for a simpleton. The sole explanation could be that Gerald, in some matters, must himself be a confiding simpleton. He had not reflected. He had not sufficiently realised the immensity of her sacrifice in flying with him even to London. She felt sorry for him. She had the woman's first glimpse of the necessity for some adjustment of outlook as an essential preliminary to uninterrupted happiness. "'It'll be all right,' Gerald persuasively continued. He looked at her, but she was not looking at him. She was nineteen, but she seemed to him utterly mature and mysterious. Her face baffled him. Her mind was a foreign land. 
Helpless in one sense she might be. Yet she, and not he, stood for destiny. The future lay in the secret and capricious workings of that mind. "'Oh, no!' she exclaimed curtly. "'Oh, no!' "'Oh, no, what?' "'We can't possibly go like that,' she said. "'But don't I tell you it'll be all right?' he protested. "'If we stay here and they come after you. "'Besides, I've got the tickets and all.' "'Why didn't you tell me sooner?' she demanded. "'But how could I?' he grumbled. "'We haven't had a single minute alone.' This was nearly true. They could not have discussed the formalities of marriage in the crowded train, nor during the hurried lunch with a dozen cocked ears at the same table. He saw himself on sure ground here. "'Now could we?' he pressed. "'And you talk about going to see pictures,' was her reply. Undoubtedly this had been a grave error of tact. He recognised that it was a stupidity, and so he resented it, as though she had committed it and not he. "'My dear girl,' he said, hurt, "'I acted for the best. "'It isn't my fault if rules are altered and officials silly.' "'You ought to have told me before,' she persisted sullenly. "'But how could I?' He almost believed in that moment that he had really intended to marry her, and that the ineptitudes of red tape had prevented him from achieving his honourable purpose, whereas he had done nothing whatever towards the marriage.' "'Oh, no! Oh, no!' she repeated, with heavy lip and liquid eye. "'Oh, no!' He gathered that she was flouting his suggestion of Paris. Slowly and nervously he approached her. She did not stir nor look up. Her glance was fixed on the washstand. He bent down and murmured, "'Come now, it'll be all right. You'll travel in the ladies' saloon on the steam-packet.' She did not stir. He bent lower and touched the back of her neck with his lips. And she sprang up, sobbing and angry. Because she was mad for him, she hated him furiously. All tenderness had vanished. "'I'll thank you not to touch me,' she said fiercely. She had given him her lips a moment ago, but now to graze her neck was an insult. He smiled sheepishly. But "'Really, you must be reasonable,' he argued. "'What have I done?' "'It's what you haven't done, I think.' she cried. Why didn't you tell me while we were in the cab? I didn't care to begin worrying you just then, he replied, which was exactly true. The fact was, he had of course shirked telling her that no marriage would occur that day. Not being a professional seducer of young girls, he lacked skill to do a difficult thing simply. Now come along, little girl, he went on, with just a trifle of impatience. Let's go out and enjoy ourselves. I assure you that everything will be all right in Paris. That's what you said about coming to London, she retorted sarcastically through her sobs. Look at you! Did he imagine for a single instant that she would have come to London with him, save on the understanding that she was to be married immediately upon arrival? This attitude of an indignant question was not to be reconciled with her belief that his excuses for himself were truthful, but she did not remark the discrepancy. Her sarcasm wounded his vanity. "'Oh, very well,' he muttered. "'If you don't choose to believe what I say—' He shrugged his shoulders. She said nothing, but the sobs swept at intervals through her frame, shaking it. Reading hesitation in her face, he tried again. "'Come along, little girl, and wipe your eyes.' And he approached her. 
She stepped back. No, no, she denied him passionately. He had esteemed her too cheaply, and she did not care to be called little girl. Then what shall you do? he inquired, in a tone which blended mockery and bullying. She was making a fool of him. I can tell you what I shan't do, she said. I shan't go to Paris. Her sobs were less frequent. That's not my question, he said icily. I want to know what you will do. There was now no pretense of affectionateness either on her part or on his. They might, to judge from their attitudes, have been nourished from infancy on mutual hatred. "'What's that got to do with you?' she demanded. "'It's got everything to do with me,' he said. "'Well, you can go and find out,' she said. It was girlish, it was childish, it was scarcely according to the canons for conducting a final rupture, but it was not the less tragically serious. Indeed, the spectacle of this young girl, absurdly behaving like one in a serious crisis, increased the tragicalness of the situation, even if it did not heighten it. The idea that ran through Gerald's brain was the ridiculous folly of having anything to do with young girls. He was quite blind to her beauty. "'Go?' he repeated her word. "'You mean that?' "'Of course I mean it,' she answered promptly. The coward in him urged him to take advantage of her ignorant, helpless pride, and leave her at her word. He remembered the scene she had made at the pit-shaft, and he said to himself that her charm was not worth her temper, and that he was a fool ever to have dreamt that it was, and that he would be doubly a fool now not to seize the opportunity of withdrawing from an insane enterprise. "'I'm to go?' he asked, with a sneer. She nodded. "'Of course, if you order me to leave you, I must. Can I do anything for you?' She signalled that he could not. "'Nothing. You're sure?' She frowned. "'Well, then, good-bye,' he turned towards the door. "'I suppose you'd leave me here without money or anything,' she said in a cold, cutting voice, and her sneer was far more destructive than his. It destroyed in him the last trace of compassion for her. "'Oh, I beg pardon,' he said, and swaggeringly counted out five sovereigns onto a chest of drawers. She rushed at them. "'Do you think I'd take your odious money?' she snarled, gathering the coins in her gloved hand. Her first impulse was to throw them in his face, but she paused, and then flung them into a corner of the room. "'Pick them up,' she commanded him. "'No, thanks,' he said briefly, and left, shutting the door. Only a very little while, and they had been lovers, exuding tenderness with every gesture, like a perfume. Only a very little while, and she had been deciding to telegraph condescendingly to her mother that she was all right. And now the dream was utterly dissolved, and the voice of that hard common sense, which spake to her in her wildest moods, grew loud in asserting that the enterprise could never have come to any good that it was from its inception an impossible enterprise, unredeemed by the slightest justification. An enormous folly. Yes, an elopement, but not like a real elopement, always unreal. She had always known that it was only an imitation of an elopement, and must end in some awful disappointment. She had never truly wanted to run away, but something within her had pricked her forward in spite of her protests. The strict notions of her elderly relatives were right after all. It was she who had been wrong, and it was she who would have to pay. "'I've been a wicked girl,' 
she said to herself grimly, in the midst of her ruin. She faced the fact, but she would not repent. At any rate, she would never sit on that stool. She would not exchange the remains of her pride for the means of escape to the worst misery that life could offer. On that point she knew herself, and she set to work to repair and renew her pride. Whatever happened, she would not return to the five towns. She could not, because she had stolen money from her Aunt Harriet. As much as she had thrown back at Gerald, she had filched from her aunt, but in the form of a note. A prudent, mysterious instinct had moved her to take this precaution, and she was glad. She would never have been able to dart that sneer at Gerald about money if she had really needed money. So she rejoiced in her crime, though since Aunt Harriet would assuredly discover the loss at once, the crime eternally prevented her from going back to her family. Never, never would she look at her mother with the eyes of a thief. In truth, Aunt Harriet did discover the loss, and very creditably said naught about it to anybody. The knowledge of it would have twisted the knife in the maternal heart. Sophia was also glad that she had refused to proceed to Paris. The recollection of her firmness in refusing flattered her vanity as a girl convinced that she could take care of herself. To go to Paris unmarried would have been an inconceivable madness. The mere thought of the enormity did outrage to her moral susceptibilities. No, Gerald had most perfectly mistaken her for another sort of girl, as, for instance, a shop assistant or a barmaid. With this the catalogue of her satisfactions ended. She had no idea at all as to what she ought to do, or could do. The mere prospect of venturing out of the room intimidated her. Had Gerald left her trunk in the hall? Of course he had. What a question! But what would happen to her? London had merely dazed her. She could do nothing for herself. She was as helpless as a rabbit in London. She drew aside the window-curtain, and had a glimpse of the river. It was inevitable that she should think of suicide, for she could not suppose that any girl had ever got herself into a plight more desperate than hers. "'I could slip out at night and drown myself,' she thought seriously. "'A nice thing that would be for Gerald.' Then loneliness, like a black midnight, overwhelmed her, swiftly wasting her strength, disintegrating her pride in its horrid flood. She glanced about for support, as a woman in the open street who feels she is going to faint, and went blindly to the bed, falling on it with the upper part of her body in an attitude of abandonment. She wept, but without sobbing. 2. Gerald Scales walked about the Strand, staring up at its high, narrow houses, crushed one against another, as though they had been packed, unsorted, by a packer who thought of nothing but economy of space. Except by Somerset House, King's College, and one or two theatres and banks, the monotony of mean shops, with several stories unevenly perched over them, was unbroken. Then Gerald encountered Exeter Hall, and examined its prominent façade with a provincial's eye, for despite his travels he was not very familiar with London. Exeter Hall naturally took his mind back to his uncle Boldero, that great and ardent nonconformist, and his own godly youth. It was laughable to muse upon what his uncle would say and think, did the old man know that his nephew had run away with a girl, meaning to seduce her in Paris. It was enormously funny. However, he had done with all that. He was well out of it. She had told him to go, and he had gone. 
She had money to get home. She had nothing to do but use the tongue in her head. The rest was her affair. He would go to Paris alone and find another amusement. It was absurd to have supposed that Sophia would ever have suited him. Not in such a family as the Baineses could one reasonably expect to discover an ideal mistress. No, there had been a mistake. The whole business was wrong. She had nearly made a fool of him. But he was not the man to be made a fool of. He had kept his dignity intact. So he said to himself. Yet all the time his dignity and his pride also were bleeding, dropping invisible blood along the length of the Strand pavements. He was at Salisbury Street again. He pictured her in the bedroom. Damn her! He wanted her. He wanted her with an excessive desire. He hated to think that he had been balked. He hated to think that she would remain immaculate. And he continued to picture her in the exciting privacy of that cursed bedroom. Now he was walking down Salisbury Street. He did not wish to be walking down Salisbury Street, but there he was. "'Oh, hell!' he murmured. I suppose I must go through with it. He felt desperate. He was ready to pay any price in order to be able to say to himself that he had accomplished what he had set his heart on. "'My wife hasn't gone out, has she?' he asked of the hall-porter. "'I'm not sure, sir. I think not,' said the hall-porter. The fear that Sophia had already departed made him sick. When he noticed her trunk still there, he took hope and ran upstairs. He saw her, a dark, crumpled, sinuous piece of humanity, half on and half off the bed, silhouetted against the bluish-white counterpane. Her hat was on the floor, with the spotted veil trailing away from it. This sight seemed to him to be the most touching that he had ever seen, though her face was hidden. He forgot everything except the deep and strange emotion which affected him. He approached the bed. She did not stir. Having heard the entry, and knowing that it must be Gerald who had entered, Sophia forced herself to remain still. A wild, splendid hope shot up in her. Constrained by all the power of her will not to move, she could not stifle a sob that had lain in ambush in her throat. The sound of the sob fetched tears to the eyes of Gerald. "'Sophia!' he appealed to her. But she did not stir. Another sob shook her. "'Very well, then.' said Gerald. We'll stay in London till we can be married. I'll arrange it. I'll find a nice boarding-house for you, and I'll tell the people you're my cousin. I shall stay on at this hotel, and I'll come and see you every day. A silence. Thank you, she blubbered. Thank you. He saw that her little gloved hand was stretching out towards him, like a feeler, and he seized it, and knelt down, and took her clumsily by the waist. Somehow he dared not kiss her yet. An immense relief surged very slowly through them both. "'I—I I really—' she began to say something, but the articulation was lost in her sobs. "'What? What do you say, dearest?' he questioned eagerly, and she made another effort. "'I really couldn't have gone to Paris with you without being married,' she succeeded at last. "'I, I really couldn't.' "'No, no,' he soothed her. "'Of course you couldn't. It was I who was wrong.' "'But you didn't know how I felt. "'So far it's all right now, isn't it?' "'She sat up and kissed him fairly. "'It was so wonderful and startling "'that he burst openly into tears. "'She saw in the facile intensity of his emotion "'a guarantee of their future happiness. "'And as he had soothed her, 
so now she soothed him. They clung together, equally surprised at the sweet, exquisite, blissful melancholy which drenched them through and through. It was remorse for having quarrelled, for having lacked faith in the supreme rightness of the high adventure. Everything was right and would be right, and they had been criminally absurd. It was remorse, but it was pure bliss and worth the quarrel. Gerald resumed his perfection again in her eyes. He was the soul of goodness and honour, and for him she was again the ideal mistress, who would, however, be also a wife. As in his mind he rapidly ran over the steps necessary to their marriage, he kept saying to himself, far off in some remote cavern of the brain, "'I shall have her! I shall have her!' He did not reflect that this fragile slip of the bane stock, unconsciously drawing upon the accumulated strength of generations of honest living, had put a defeat upon him. After tea, Gerald, utterly content with the universe, redeemed his word, and found an irreproachable boarding-house for Sophia in Westminster, near the Abbey. She was astonished at the glibness of his lies to the landlady about her, and about their circumstances generally. He also found a church and a parson close by, and in half an hour the formalities preliminary to a marriage were begun. He explained to her that, as she was now resident in London, it would be simpler to recommence the business entirely. She sagaciously agreed. As she by no means wished to wound him again, she made no inquiry about those other formalities which, owing to red tape, had so unexpectedly proved abortive. She knew she was going to be married, and that sufficed. The next day she carried out her filial idea of telegraphing to her mother. End of Book Three, Chapter One